we, the, bring, uh, a song that is called Everlasting God. They do it at Cornerstone a lot, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm trying to find the right song. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It would be a new one for us. It would be very new. Okay, so then. Jamie couldn't be in person, but so glad she was able to record that. That was wonderful. So in Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, 
perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Jamie, for jumping in from across the uh, street there. Uh, Thank you for Susie for reading our text this morning. Uh, What a beautiful opportunity. I'm sure there'll be more to say on remembering the poor, but to think of those that don't have access to clean laundry. Man, an opportunity to be able to spend uh, time rubbing shoulders with the poor here in our building. Uh, That that fires me up. I don't know if that fires any of you guys up, but that's pretty... Pretty exciting stuff, pretty near and dear, I think, to the heart uh, of our God. Um, Well, good morning again. We are in the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, and I couldn't be more fired up to be spending some time together with you in this um, letter. Um, This is a very fiery, intense, and personal letter, letter, so I've got to amp up the uh, intensity a little bit this morning here because Paul is just like bringing the heat. And so get ready for the flamethrower here. Strap on your seatbelts. We're we're going in to the book of Galatians um, yet again. And Paul is so fired up in this book because the gospel is at stake, right? People are adding additional requirements for full acceptance with God and fellowship around the dinner table together, and Paul is having none of it. He's saying, are you kidding me? Are you guys adding things to Jesus for welcoming people into your fellowship, welcoming people around your table? Are you going to add in all these wedge issues, all these issues that divide and separate people? Um, He is just livid. He's fired up, and he's intense, and he's getting into it. Last week, uh, I described this... uh, Uh, in a little simple formula, like Jesus plus anything equals another gospel. That was kind of the equation. And like we live in these times and days where, you know, we're so polarized, so divided, because we live in communities and with people that are adding things to Jesus. And uh, when we get together, you know, it's like, well, Jesus is good, but what about what's your stance on politics or race or sexuality or you know, nationalism, or you pick whatever hot-button theme or issue out there. People want to add other things together for fellowships. Families are feeling this. Churches are feeling this. Friendships are feeling the tension for people wanting to add other things to the gospel. And so Paul opens this letter uh, saying how astonished he is that these Galatian Christians are so quickly deserting the gospel. That's verse 6 of chapter 1. And then he goes on in verse 11 through 24, which we saw last week, to remind them of the authenticity of the gospel he preaches, right? This is not man's gospel, verse 11, some cleverly invented marketing pitch for your best life now. No, no. Paul says he received it directly from Jesus and passed it along directly to these Galatian Christians. This is the pure, undiluted, 200-proof 
gospel that he wants us to enjoy and savor uh, together as a church. So in, so in chapter 1, Paul assures his readers that he has received the gospel from Jesus and warns them about deserting it, turning to another gospel. Here in chapter 2, he sets out for a second visit to Jerusalem to confirm that the gospel he preaches is the very same gospel that the rest of the apostles received directly from Jesus and that they're preaching so that no divisions or dissensions will break out in the life of the church, right? So much is at stake for this early church here in the first century as all these issues are being brought in, circumcision and kosher dining and all of these mosaic rules and regulations that are dividing Jew and Gentile, Jews and non-Jews together, and they're not able to share relationship together as a family. And so Paul is pleading passionately for unity around the gospel. We see that here in chapter 2. So this morning we're going to trace Paul's journey to Jerusalem to confirm the unity of the early church around this one gospel. And I've got three points for you this morning. Uh, The first is Paul seeks confirmation of his gospel. That's we see in verse 1 through 2. False brothers bring opposition to his gospel, which is why the tone of this letter is so intense, lots of opposition. And then the apostles' recognition of his gospel in verses 6 through 10. So um, confirmation, opposition, recognition. If you want three words to kind of keep this straight in your mind as we're going forward. And my aim for this morning's sermon is that we would recognize and rally around the same gospel together and that we wouldn't forget the poor. Those two things seem to be connected in uh, the apostles' uh, mind. And so let's pray as we dive in. Pray that God might very much meet us here as we dive into his word uh, together, that we would walk away changed by it. So Father, I pray that the wonder of your grace would come home to us in new, fresh, and powerful ways this morning as we look at Paul's journey to Jerusalem. Uh, Would you unite us together as a church family around the gospel, um, God, and would uh, not only our church benefit, God, from this beautiful unity that we experience around Jesus, God, the welcome that we extend uh, from your heart to those in our city, but also would those rich and poor and everyone in between benefit, God, from the work of this church and its ministry here in our new location. So would you come this morning by the power of your spirit? Would you bring your word to life for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's start by looking at Paul's journey to Jerusalem to seek confirmation of the gospel that he's preaching. We see this in chapter 2, verse 1. If you are following along with me on your phone, in your Bible, you're going to need it. Get it out, read it, (laughs) think through it. That's why I don't put it up on the screen, so you have to actually access it on uh, your own device. Sorry if you don't have such a device in front of you. Just reach into those pew Bibles in front of you. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Paul tells us, right, that this second trip to Jerusalem, he he did a first one back in chapter one, 
uh, was sparked by a revelation from God that resulted in him privately sharing the gospel he preached to the Gentiles with the rest of the apostles. He's like, look, this is what I've been doing for the last 14 years. I have been giving my life to share the gospel with Jews and non-Jews all over the Greco-Roman world. It has been a dynamite experience. Uh, And we see here in verse 2 that Paul wants to make sure, right, that he's not running or had not run in vain. And we think, running, man, I love running. I'm a big runner. I've been running even out in the cold this year. But running is an apt metaphor for Paul's life and ministry. If we could put the map up here uh, for people, um, Paul has been like running, man. This dude has been hustling for the gospel. And I want to put the map up there and you can try and trace it along. I don't have like a laser pointer to kind of give you, but if you can see it as we're going, I want to give you a quick summary of how Paul's been running over the last 14 years. Paul was radically converted from Judaism, as we saw last week, right? Hit the ground running. This is 80, 31 through 32. After his encounter with Jesus and conversion, he was led to Damascus, a little city over there in Israel, right up there near Abilene there. You see the city of Damascus, uh, where he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was baptized. He immediately started powerfully preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, He shook that city up so much that the Jewish establishment decided they needed to kill him. And so he had to head out of there. After three years, he made a brief visit to Jerusalem to meet Peter and James to get acquainted in Jerusalem, just right down the way a little bit further. The Jerusalem church sent him to his hometown of Tarsus. We see that in Acts 9.30. All of this is in Acts 9 so far. Uh, then Barnabas went to find him in Tarsus, which was his home city, to bring him to Syrian Antioch over here in Syria, a little bit further up the coast there and in Syria, in Syrian Antioch, Paul's ministry just, I mean, it goes crazy. Jews and Gentiles are all coming together in one of the largest cities in the Greco-Roman world. And this dynamic multicultural church takes place, right? The home church in Jerusalem, it was Jewish. All of a sudden, Paul drops into this church in Antioch, man, and it's just crazy. Jews, Gentiles, all coming together, eating food together across all the cultural boundaries, all the things that separated them. I mean, it was scandalous. It was radical. It was crazy. Barnabas brings Paul, and all of a sudden, that ministry just blows up in the best sort of way. Beautiful ministry is happening. They have an incredibly fruitful ministry there. They end up delivering famine relief down to Jerusalem. Like, they raise tons of money to help the poor in Jerusalem, which may be this conversation that Paul is having here in chapter 2. And then Paul is sent out from Antioch. Antioch becomes the first great church planning church. And they send him out on this missionary journey here, which we see out through all of the Galatian churches. And then he finally comes back to Antioch. And so it has been a busy 14 years. It has been a fruitful 14 years. Um, We could say Paul's been running hard, man. He has been running hard to see the gospel spread all over the Greco-Roman world. And it's not that Paul has any doubts about his gospel, Um, He's seen its power, he's seen its fruit, he's seen it break through cultural barriers, he's seen it literally spark riots in cities. Like, I mean, this gospel has turned the world upside down. It's not that Paul has doubts about his gospel, but because of the opposition he's experiencing, he wants to make sure that the apostles are all on the same page. Any divisions at this crucial point would be devastating to the life 
of the church. And so Paul's ministry has been dynamic wherever he's gone, but he recognizes that if the apostles are not together, if they're not laboring with one voice for the sake of the gospel, this early church movement, this Jesus movement that's now breaking across lines out of its Jewish messianic origins out to Gentiles, right? That ministry is ultimately going to be sabotaged. Uh, Tim Keller says it like this in his wonderful commentary. uh, This meeting could have ended up splitting the church. And at such an early stage, it's like two virtually different religions would have emerged. The stakes couldn't have been higher, right? So essentially, Paul could have been like, man, you just need Jesus. Maybe you don't need circumcision. You don't need to follow Torah or kosher dining codes. You don't need to follow the religious festivals. And then you have another group of people that are like, no, you need to be Jewish and you need to do all the Jewish things. You need Jesus plus all these Jewish practices. And so Paul uh, comes to Jerusalem to confirm that they are all on the same page. And I certainly feel that passion as well, I think, in my own heart to know that I've not run in vain. I've been being a pastor here for 10 years this September and running hard for the gospel, uh, all the joys and all the hardships of pastoral uh, ministry. Man, uh, I want to know that I haven't run this race in vain, that this ministry is part of a greater movement of the gospel here in our city and around the world, right? That's the, the heart that Paul has. I loved a couple of years ago, um, the Palau Association brought in a group here to Grand Rapids to unite all the churches in our city around the gospel. I don't know if you guys remember that. It was called City Fest, and there are billboards up all over town, and like hundreds of churches in Grand Rapids. It was the biggest attempt to present a unified front for the gospel like in like 50 years in Grand Rapids. Um, there was ministry happening uh, downtown, you know, big events, big evangelistic events. Um, there was work to reunite people in a refugee ministry, uh, help people in uh, education, you know, poverty, homelessness. Like there was this massive concerted effort for the churches of Grand Rapids to actually demonstrate the gospel together. It was cool for a year sitting together, praying with other pastors and churches across his life. It was so cool to see that gospel spreading out. And uh, I hope to see more events like that. It's been amazing where the Palau Association has worked in cities like Portland. Churches from across all kinds of different lines have gotten together uh, to share the gospel and then demonstrate it in word and deed in their city. That's the kind of thing that we see here. Paul is like rallying the church together. Like we need to all be on the same page about this beautiful gospel that we share. And then we need to demonstrate it in word and deed to our city, right? A united church is a powerful church. It's a prevailing church. It's a church. Whereas a divided, squabbling, arguing, uh, divisive, toxic church environment, right? Nothing is more uh, depressing than that, right? You know, people just run from churches full of conflict and drama and dissension. And we're living in a cultural moment, right? Where families, friends, churches, denominations are being split by so many of the hot button social issues in our time nationalism, racism, sexuality. I was just talking to some buddies in a denomination here, headquartered right here in town. We were like, literally the denomination just split into like one third of the denomination just left over some of the issues around sexuality right now. I mean, these are, these are polarizing times. These are difficult times. These are challenging times that we live in. And we need Paul's, clair- we need Paul's passion to clarify the gospel. We need Paul's clarion call to 
rally around the gospel and to actually live it out in our lives and community. So I love Paul's passion here. He's seeking, right, to confirm the gospel, that he's not running in vain, that all his work is not for nothing, but that movement that he's he's been working on throughout the Gentile world is going to continue, it's going to grow, and it's going to expand until it makes it all the way here to those of us sitting here and all the way out in Grand Rapids. So Paul is seeking confirmation that he's not running in vain, but his first encounter, he first encounters opposition in Jerusalem from false brothers. He's seeking confirmation, but instead he gets opposition from false brothers in the church here in Jerusalem. And so let's pick it up here in verse 3 through 5. Follow along with me here. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them I did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, Paul's passion, man, opposition, Paul just brings out even more passion for Paul to see the true gospel come home with power. And Paul is kind of like, you know, he he kind of forces the issue here. It's pretty remarkable if you're following along in chapter two. He's like, he just mentions, by the way, yeah, yeah, I brought this guy Titus along with me. And, you know, and then in verse three, but even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Isn't that interesting? Paul brought Titus, a Greek, a non-Jewish guy to Jerusalem. He brought him to the mother church And he's like, hey, I'm bringing this guy. He's not circumcised. He's not following kosher eating habits. He's not keeping the law. What are you guys going to do with this guy? Are you going to force him to become a Jew, to undergo circumcision, to follow all the Jewish laws and perspectives? What's going to happen? So Paul, he forces the issue. He is so passionate about what's happening. He's like, man, I'm going to force the issue. I'm bringing Titus along. I don't want this to just be an abstract theological issue. I want you to look Titus in the face this Gentile Christian who represents all the Christian brothers and sisters up in Syrian Antioch, all the brothers and sisters that I just ministered to on my Galatian missionary journey, I want you to be able to look this guy in the eye and recognize, are you going to force him to become like a Jew or are you just going to say, because of faith in Jesus, we're accepted into God's family? And so he is starting very personally and he's bringing someone into the conversation, bringing Titus into the equation to make sure that the Jerusalem church is going to have to make a decision. What are they going to do with this guy, Titus? Right? Are they going to eat with him? Are they going to share fellowship together with this guy, or are they going to exclude him? Titus is a test case, right? You know, Are the apostles going to demand circumcision for all these new Gentile Christians? Will this Gentiles have to become a Jew to enjoy fellowship together? Apparently, there were false brothers who were demanding this very thing, but Paul is having none of it, right? He says that adding anything to the gospel amounts to, get this, slavery, right? A set of burdensome expectations that would steal the freedom that these new converts to Christianity have. This would become a new standard to judge, condemn, and exclude He's saying what makes this community so unique, so dynamic, so free is that it's formed around Jesus, not the old Jew and Gentile cultural distinctions. Man, this is the kind of freedom Paul is willing to fight for. Man, he's saying if you accept all of these other cultural additions to Christianity, Jesus plus pick 
your cultural issue, right? You're going to be falling into slavery. All of a sudden, people are going to be judging each other and excluding each other based on, you know, Jesus plus all people's pet issues, their hobby horses, all of those things. And Paul is just, he's just, he's like, this is slavery. He's like, Jesus plus anything is ultimately going to lead to slavery. Don't, don't add these other additions on top of Jesus. Don't add that to burden to the community, to these Gentile Christians, right? It's Jesus plus nothing, and that's where freedom is to be found, that we're welcome into this fellowship on the basis of who Jesus is, what he's done, and nothing else. And freedom is a major theme in this letter. I mean, Paul is like all about freedom in Christ, the freedom that we have. Not a freedom to do anything, as we'll see, uh, but a freedom to be who we are ultimately in Christ. Not to be defined by all these peripheral issues, these side issues. And so Paul is like passionate about it. We Americans, like we're passionate about freedom, right? I mean, it's like freedom. America, man, we've got like freedom down. But, But Paul is like, man, True freedom is in Jesus, and let me tell you, that is so much more beautiful than anything we even celebrate on the 4th of July, man. This is like American freedom. I have, I have a buddy, this is a total side note and not in my notes, who's like a Marine Corps guy. He's like, there's nobody. It's like America, man. We got the most freedom <laughs> in the world. Like, there's like freedom, and then there's like American freedom. And I was like, dude, there's like American freedom, and then there's like Freedom in Christ, man. That, that's where Paul is like, let me one-up your, take your American freedom. I want to even up it one more, man. There's a freedom in Christ that will absolutely, radically, dynamically change your life. And he wants these Christians to experience it, and he's willing uh, to, to really have a conf- some hard conversations to get to that place. So, so we see, right, verse 6, that Paul is not going to yield even for a moment, so that the gospel might be preserved for you, right? Which is, which is pretty cool to have somebody fighting for you to experience the freedom in the gospel. Paul has all the Gentile Christians that he's ministered to in his heart, right? All these people he just spent the last 14 years ministering to, he's like, man, I want you all to be able to experience the freedom of Christ, and I'm willing to go to Jerusalem and have some hard conversations, if required. We're going to see next week, in the second half of chapter 2, more hard conversations to ensure that this freedom is preserved for you. Um, Have you ever been a part of a church community where it's Jesus plus other things? Um, Jesus plus whatever their pet hobby horse might be. I don't know if you've ever been in a church like that or you grew up in a church that had like their own pet hobby horses. I'm not even, I, I could list a whole bunch of them, but you just have to use your own creative imagination, right? If you've been there, right? And if you get on the wrong side of whatever the issue in that church is, like you're in trouble, right? I mean, you could get shunned, you could get shamed, you could get totally excluded from that community. Like it can get really ugly, right? If you, if you, you, you one of those faux pas, you, you, you cross the line in one of those legalistic circles or maybe liberal circles where, where the standards are equally rigid and you, you say one of those things, or you do one of those things that is just absolutely, and you know how that is, right? You get judged, you get excluded. There is a lot of pain associated with being a part of that kind of community. But on the other hand, have you ever been in a church where people would fight to remind you of the acceptance you have in Jesus? Like somebody just wanted to like, man, I just want to remind you of the gloriously free welcome you have in Jesus. Wherever you're at in your life, man, you can come and experience life 
with Jesus, come as you are. Man, the church is a hospital for sinners. It's not a museum for saints. Like, just come and experience that free welcome. For, that's a totally different experience, is it? A church that has, like, you could join our church if you check XYZ box, or you can join our church because Jesus wants you to be a part of it, and he died on the cross to pay for all your sins, to welcome you in, man, to just free you to be a part of his family. And that's a powerful thing, right? If you have somebody who's advocated for you in that way, reminded you of the welcome that you have in Jesus. So Paul comes to Jerusalem seeking confirmation that the gospel he's preaching is the same as the rest of the apostles, but he first encounters opposition. How are the rest of the apostles going to respond, right? They're, they got put into a little bit of a position here, right? Titus is there. Are they going to eat dinner with him or not? You know, here they are hanging out down at, you know, the Winchester or something like, can Titus come or, or does he have to eat over, over at, uh, you know, the, over at um, Hancock? You know, I mean, did, can these two people eat together or, or not? How is this going to play out in the life of the church? Is Titus going to be welcome in? Is he going to get a big hug from the church family or is he going to be shunned and excluded? What's going to happen? Right? We're here in verses 6 through 10 to figure out how this is all going to play out. I hope you feel the tension, the excitement here in Galatians as this unfolds here. So turn with me to verses 6 through 10, and we'll see the apostles' recognition of what, God, what Paul is teaching here. And for those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. First, we see the apostles added nothing to Paul's message. Don't miss this, right? They didn't add circumcision. They didn't add Jewish kosher eating practices. They didn't add Jewish Sabbaths or festivals or anything out of Torah keeping as a whole, right? They, they wanted to preserve the freedom of Paul's gospel to these Gentile Christians. Like, man, I want you to experience the freedom. You get a relationship with God through Jesus. He's done it all. So you get it all. You get all the benefits of fellowship with him together. Uh, just, just imagine that kind of freedom, right? To be welcomed into a community on the basis of Jesus and not based on a whole other list of things and qualifications that would bring you. And that's what's so revolutionary about Christianity. That's what was so revolutionary in the ancient world, Greco ancient world, this very stratified culture where you had rich and poor, you had slaves and free, you had Jews and Gentiles, all these distinctions. All of a sudden, this group of Christians are hanging out together that don't look anything like each other, racially, ethnically, socioeconomically, and the the Roman world was like, what on earth is going, this is subverting the social order, this is revolutionary, this is crazy, 
And the resistance to it was intense. Now, we live in an intensely egalitarian society today, so it doesn't feel quite as revolutionary or radical because we live in a, in a culture that's the product of this freedom of Christianity. We just got rid of the Christ part and, and just were like, hey, we just like the freedom part. Can we get rid of the guardrails and just have some fun with it? And so that's kind of the American world that we live in, but but this, this was radical. This was revolutionary. This is the foundation for the world we live in uh, today. Uh, but I don't want you to miss this. There's nothing being added to welcome with Jesus. I love how uh, Tom Schreiner applies this. Um, I had a little extensive quote. I thought this would do, did some heart work for me, and so I hope it might do the same thing uh, for you. But he said this, how easy it is to get our security and significance from what we do. We may be driven to activity by a deep-seated insecurity that longs for approbation, that's a really big word, or approval from others. Our activity, both in our employment and at the church, may appear to be an indication of our commitment to God, but at its root, we may actually be seeking the approval of others so that what we do does not flow from being accepted and loved in Christ, but from a desire to obtain praise from others. Oh, how easily we, and, and I, of course, stray from the gospel. May we meditate daily on the truth that we are accepted, not because of our work, because of what Christ has done for us, right? That's what the apostles are saying. We're, we're not going to add anything to the gospel except what Jesus has done for us. We're accepted, we're approved, we're loved, we're welcome into the family because of what Jesus does. And there's so much freedom in that, in that welcome that we receive from God. Now, now, he loves us too much to leave us there in that state of welcome and acceptance. He's got some work to clean us up here and, uh, and all that work to do. But the welcome, the freedom of that acceptance, uh, the way we're welcomed into that family is absolutely based on nothing but Jesus. So the apostles add nothing to Paul's message. Second, the apostles recognized the uniqueness of Paul's ministry and extended to him the right hand of fellowship. We sat in verses 7 through 9. Paul's not saying here, right, there are two gospels, one to the uncircumcised, one to the circumcised, one to the Jews, one to the Gentiles, but that there's two unique people groups in which the gospel is now being preached. Right? The whole point of his letter, as we saw in chapter 1, is that there is only one gospel, right? Jesus plus nothing, right? That's the, that's the true gospel. This one gospel is now being preached to Jews and non-Jews, and the apostles perceive this is, I love this verse 9, the grace of God, God's grace just overflowing the banks of the Jewish people group. And the apostles are now marveling that God's grace has overflowed to the Gentiles in dramatic ways, building bridges between cultures that seemed absolutely unbridgeable. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is God's grace at work. People from different cultures and backgrounds all sitting together around the table enjoying fellowship because of Jesus. And that is what the apostles are signing off on. And that is what the apostles give Paul the right hand of fellowship for. I love that. They're like, man, we love what you're doing with the Gentiles. We love that the gospel is overflowing to them. We love that Gentiles are receiving God's grace. We just want to give you the right hand of fellowship to go and continue this beautiful work in ministry. We're all on Team Jesus together. We're all in agreement, uh, moving forward with one accord to see the gospel break through all these different cultural uh, boundaries. And so this gesture would have also 
powerfully rebutted, right, the claims of those trying to drive a wedge between Paul and the rest of the apostles. See, this Paul guy, he's got a really screwy gospel. I don't know where he invented it, but in Jerusalem, they do it right. And Paul's saying, nope, no, I just went to Jerusalem, and we sorted that out. We're all on the same page, right? People trying to drive a wedge between the Jerusalem church, the home church, and these Galatian churches out on the frontier between Jews and Gentiles. This agreement about the gospel preserves Paul's groundbreaking work among the Gentiles. And so I want to see uh, that grace of God at work here in our church, breaking through to new people in our city, right? Breaking through to new cultures around the world as we support missionaries and church planners who are taking the gospel to new places, right? We want to see this same beautiful gospel bring this same beautiful freedom to people all around the world. And, and I think grace is so important, so crucial in our time because it's a foreign concept, right? We live in a cancel culture, right? We've gotten to the point in our lives where, where, where grace has kind of been thrown out the window, right? It's a new era of judgment around whatever the themes that are out there in our culture right now. People just get canceled now. I mean, you make a mistake or you made a mistake 20 years ago in your past and it surfaces like you're done, right? No more chances for you. You are out of luck and all. We have this beautiful capital in the church, and it's called grace, and it's this never-ending resource that we can offer to people to come and experience God's goodness and kindness, his welcome. And we're going to need it if we're going to build bridges against people that disagree. And uh, none of this is to say that we can't have serious disagreements in the church about all the issues I've mentioned that are splitting and dividing our culture. They just can't be the foundation for our unity. And grace gives us the resources, the tools that we need to be able to disagree charitably and lovingly and uh, in a way that dignify each other as human beings instead of cancel each other as human beings. So we're also going to have to extend the right hand of fellowship, right, to those who are reaching different people groups, doing different kinds of ministries in our city and our work. Uh, if we're going to be a part of this kind of ministry, right, that might make us a little uncomfortable here in the city, working with, you know, Mel Trotter and rubbing shoulders with, like, homeless people and working with other cities across different, working with African-American churches in the community, working across cultural dynamics with the Spanish churches. I love that we're singing some <laughs> Spanish uh, songs this morning, right? We're trying to recognize the gospel is way bigger than just our own little world. That's the beauty of the gospel. It transcends those boundaries. Um, and finally, last but not least, and I'm running over here, um, apparently getting a little fired up about this whole thing. So I got I to gotta land the plane here before we, uh, so you can get off to that lunch at Hancock where all of you can go eat a meal together because of what Jesus has done. And so, but it it'd be, it would be, yeah, I can't skip verse 10 here. It, it seems to be a bit of an add-on here, but it's a significant feature in our text. Uh, the apostles tell Paul only, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It would be unthinkable for Christians who have been accepted into God's family through Jesus and nothing else to exclude or ignore the poor, right, because of their economic status, right? If we are welcomed into God's family, not because we had it all together or we figured it out or we're such good, responsible, upstanding, middle-class people, uh, but because of Jesus, how could we not welcome in the poor into our life and into our ministry? We are all standing on level ground at the foot of the cross, right? We have no room for pretense or posturing or acting like we have it all together. No, we welcome the poor in just the same way we have been 
welcomed. And being a relatively affluent church, right, you know, we have to remember Jesus' words, right, to whom much is given, much will be required, right? We have an opportunity to give of some of the resources we've had to serve the city um, around us. And so having this building and having this space gives us a unique opportunity. Being located in the city, surrounded just blocks away by poverty and homelessness, to turn a blind eye to that would be absolutely criminal. And Paul and the apostles are one in their agreement about doing this. In fact, Paul uh, was probably on this very trip delivering money for the poor in Jerusalem. If it wasn't this trip, it was the trip before. And he's going to do it again. Paul is always collecting money to serve the poor and these under-resourced Christians back in Jerusalem as he's doing ministry with these affluent, wealthy Gentiles, non-Jewish people who have to have plenty of resources to serve the church. So we have an opportunity to put our time and our money where our mouth is with laundry love. We have an opportunity here to just open up our basement, which is not a particularly fancy place, throw some washers and dryers in there, and, and then be able to open up our space to be able to spend time with people in that community. And the opportunities that presents are pretty limitless because we have a captive audience. People just hanging out, doing their laundry. We can talk, we build relationships. We could share a meal together. We could you know, open a food pantry. We could offer some health screenings in clinic because we have lots of awesome medical people in our community. Um, we could do all kinds of incredible things here as we open our doors. We could partner uh, with lots of nonprofits in our city to meet a need. And so that is really exciting. And I hope uh, our church can just embrace that and welcome that, open our doors, and that'll be a beautiful opportunity for us to be able to work with those who are less privileged than us here in our city. I want to close with a quote from Leslie Newbegin, which I hope ties all of my long rambling dialogue together. Uh, but Newbegin says this, and I think this is, this is helpful. He says, I have come to feel that the primary reality of which we have, come, have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact in public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which is the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. I am, of course, not denying the importance of many activities by which we seek to challenge the public life of the gospel, evangelistic campaigns, distributions of Bibles and Christian literature, conferences, and even books such as this one. But I am saying uh, that these are all secondary and they have power to accomplish their purpose only as they're rooted in and lead back to a believing community, right? That's the, that's the hope, right? That's the dream that we as a church could actually live out this beautiful gospel message together, and that when people walk in the doors, they would actually experience uh, what we're talking about and recognize that God is among us, that that freedom that we're talking about is here, that there's real grace for us to experience and celebrate together. There's fellowship together around the table, people that might never hang out with each other or agree with each other, uh, people sitting down, Democrats and Republicans. (laughs) Who would have ever thought those people could sit at the table there, black and white? Who would have thought those gaps could ever be bridged in a culture like we're living like right now? Uh, rich and poor sitting around the t- same table. That's, that's the beautiful vision that we have here. And I pray that our church would be able to rally around that gospel, that we would be able to, by God's spirit and by his grace, live it out together, and that we would share that gracious welcome of Jesus with everyone, rich and poor, black and white, Republican, Democrat, whatever the, dem- whatever the 
divisions you want to talk about, uh, that the gospel would be able to prevail over those things that divide. And so let me pray, because clearly we're going to need God's help for that to actually happen in the life of a church. Boy, uh, Father, we need your help, God. Just even say that sounds really ostentatious and really like (laughs) crazy to even think about a community like that. And yet, God, that is the very thing that this gospel did in the first century. It happened between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, God, it shook the Roman world and eventually overturned the Roman world. Uh, The world we're living in today is deeply impacted by this beautiful leveling power of the gospel to bring people together across all the lines that divide. So would you grant us grace, God? We're going to need it. We're going to mess this up so many times. We're going to hurt each other in the process. We're going to say stupid things. We're going to be insensitive, God. Uh, But would you grant us just grace to move forward humbly, uh, to serve our city well, love each other well, And uh, yeah, we pray that you get all the glory in everything we say and do. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.